Awesome. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Well, it's good to be with you. Um, it's always a gift to get to come up here and share. I love this church uh, with my whole heart. Um, even makes me feel emotional. Um, but uh, yeah, this is my home. and You guys are my family. Uh, my literal blood family, uh, obviously as leadership, but it's Everybody here, I just feel like, is an extension and, and part of it. And so it's, it's a gift. It's an honor. I don't take this lightly, uh, even though it was a last-second invitation. <laughs> um, I'm just going to pray for us as we, as we start. God, I just uh, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you're a God who pursues our hearts, Lord. I thank you that you're a God who meets us, Lord, even in worship tonight, God. I thank you for just the gift of your presence, God, and how you always do come, Lord, and you always show your face, and you always reveal more of who you are. And so, God, I ask that in these next 20 or 30 minutes that you'd continue to do that, that you continue to show your face, God, that you would unlock hearts, Lord, and that you would just reveal more of who you are. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, I kind of, as I was just praying and, and kind of contemplating on what was on my heart and uh, what I felt like the Lord was, was pushing me to share, I kind of, I want to say this, I hope it stays true, but I, I kind of just want to invite you into thoughts that I've been having lately. Uh, even, I, I don't plan to preach a three-point sermon to you, I more so kind of want to bring you into... And I might have a hard time getting through this because I've just been getting undone by who God is um, in really ways that I can't really comprehend, to be honest with you. And I'm going to do my best to kind of just articulate that and to show you, um, kind of, and just bring you into my thinking, honestly. Um, as I shared a few weeks ago when we got back from Pakistan, um, how uh, I was just moved while we were there. Um, and even more so coming back, uh, Jordan's last two messages have like kind of disturbed me, to be completely honest. Um, I think Pakistan kind of opened up things and then more than anything, God just used it to like really get down and dig down to the deeper places of my heart. Um, and kind of gave me the, the opportunity to, from my outside looking in, kind, kind of a, take an assessment of my life, really, and what it looks like, and what this incarnational life looks like. And, and Jordan preached on it, on the physical and the spiritual, not being separated and actually becoming one to where these messages have flesh on them and they look like something. Um, and it's challenging, and it's challenged me deeply as to, like, what is... What does an incarnational life look like for us? And how do I actually do that? What's the, what's the strength at which I do that with? What's the motivation? What compels me into that? What drives me into that? How, what are the tools that actually equip me to be incarnational the way that Jesus was, was incarnational? And these questions that, yeah, this Pakistan experience made me like open that up, but like so does day-to-day -day life here in Boise, Idaho, to be completely honest with you. It's, it's, incarnational life isn't just one to go live when you go into a third world country, an undeveloped nation where, where people have less than you. Like, it's like this life that like, what's even more challenging is 
It's like, what does that look like here? And I know it has to look like something here in my life because it can't just be there. If it's just there, it's, it's, it's really not an incarnational life, to be honest with you. And if it just comes out, if my heart just bleeds when I walk through a brickyard with slaves, but it doesn't bleed when I see people on a day-to-day basis who, who don't know who Jesus is, it's, is that really incarnational? And it's just questions that have just been plaguing my mind. Um, and, you know, perspective is like a powerful thing. We were in uh, Rome this summer, and... Uh, St. Peter's Basilica is like this amazing church right in, the, in, the, in Rome. And there's this hill that you can go up on. And they say that it's like an optical illusion. And there's two places in the world they, that, that, that this, this kind of optical illusion is present. It's here and it's also at the Taj Mahal. They say I've never been there. But from this hill, you walk into this church and come through this gate. And there's like this long pathway, this dirt pathway, and there's like trees, high trees, 40, 50 foot trees on both sides. And it's just like a probably 150 yards. And at the end of it, like across the little ravine is St. Peter's Basilica. And as you turn the corner and you look, the dome on the church literally looks expansive. It looks like the biggest building you've ever seen in your entire life. It's, it, like, it like blows your mind away when you turn the corner and you look down this little dirt road. And then our tour guy that was with us, he's like, yeah, just uh, close your eyes and walk down this path 150 yards, dead straight, and then open your eyes when you get to the end of it. So we like, with my head down, I'm like walking down, and I get to the very end, and I open my eyes. And it looks like the smallest building, like the most average building. And it was like, holy smokes, like perspective. Like if I just would have stayed back there, I would have thought it was like the biggest building like ever to be built. Right, but it's like as I stepped closer, I it kind of came into perspective, and I saw things in a clearer light. And I kind of feel like to live this incarnational life, it demands what the Lord has been speaking to me. Is it like it demands a new perspective um, on what that what propels that life? And what I believe that is, and and, and I'm going to go into it. And I just kind of want to go through the Old Testament and kind of talk through a couple verses, but the perspective that I think I've found that I need is that to live the incarnational life, we actually have to have a revelation of the pursuit of God. Like, I need a perspective, because for me to be compelled to, like, become the love that Jesus became, like, I don't just have that within myself. I don't. I don't just have those tools on my belt that I can pull out. I can't just decide today that like I'm going to live this incarnational life and like here it is, snap my fingers. And I really believe that like to live that life it takes a revelation of like the pursuit of God and the pursuit of God on an individual level. Um and I think a revelation when you realize how God's been pursuing you for like 7,000 years. It will wreck you. It's wrecked me in the last couple of weeks. That like, it will compel you. I, I'm finding myself compelled in a way I wasn't compelled. I'm finding myself look at the things that were really difficult about becoming incarnational. It's like, wow, that looks really easy. And so I just kind of want to go through, honestly, if you have your Bibles with you, you can kind of open. I'll probably go quick. We got baptism, so I'm not going to take forever. Um, I'm going to grab a tissue so you don't hear me.
This whole book, from Genesis to Revelation, is a book just articulating the pursuit of God. And I want you to, even as we go through this, like, see yourself. Like, God saw you from the beginning, right? He knew the beginning from the end. He knew you. You were at the forefront of his mind with everything he did. And allow just, like, as we go through these passages, like, allow yourself and just open your heart up to be moved by how this is the story of how God pursued you on an individual level. And so in Genesis, like, it all starts, right? Adam and Eve are walking through the garden. It's like, this is like the picture of heaven, right? Through the cool of day. Here's God. You know, here's perfect. Here's, here's creation made in my image and likeness, and this is what I made him for. You know, and then, then the fall comes, right? And, and Adam and Eve fall into the sin, and there's this separation, and the whole Old Testament and the New Testament is this like accumulation of like God trying to come and unite us once again, to unite himself back with us. And, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking about this in like, even in the context of the movies Taken, you know, they're like so extreme. I think I've seen one or two of them. But, you know, the movie starts out and it's just like, oh, the family's on vacation. Like, it's how it's supposed to be. You know, like that's Genesis 1. It's like, it's just... God made it, and there it is, right? And then there's the fall, you know, they get taken, you know? And, 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 then, uh, and then really this pursuit begins, I believe, is with Abraham, you know? And, and in Genesis 12, the Lord calls Ab- uh, Abraham, you know, he's in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says, I want you to go to a place that I don't even know, what, I'm not even going to tell you where it is, but he says this, and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you. And I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's like God, like at the fall, right? Like he didn't just like step back and be like, oh, let, let things go to crap. It's like God's like this intentional. You can just see like God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit like sitting together and being like, okay, there's like this divide between us. How are we going to bridge this? What's the story going to look like? And it really starts with Abraham. And he's like, I'm going to call this man out. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to bless all families to the world through you. Right. And he begins this beautiful journey of Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, Right, this this inheritance gets passed down and down, and and I'm only going through like forty thousand like foot elevation here. I'm not stopping on like every single stop. It will take us like twenty days if I do that. But I just want to stop at a few points, right? I really think the pursuit begins right there. Creation's fallen. There's this separation, and God's like, "How am I going to do it?" And He sees this man Abraham, and He's like, "Through you, the families of the world are going to be blessed." You know, and 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 the story begins, and then. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you have Joseph and the the Israelites, and the Lord chooses Israel, right? And they're in slavery in Egypt, and then he calls calls, uh, Moses to lead them out. And in Exodus 25, Moses has been out on Mount Sinai for, for 40 days and 40 nights, just stuck in the glory of the Lord. And then it says in verse... It's a short one, 25.8. He goes through what everyone's going to bring, the contributions for the sanctuary. And, and God says, and let them make a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. And it's like the beginning. That's like step one. God's like, okay, I called Abraham. 
There's the accumulation of like, my heart is just to be with my people. So he finds this man, Moses. He's not perfect, but he's willing. And he goes and the Lord's like, build a, t- build a-, build a tent so that I can just like, I- I'm not with them and-, and there's this divide, but like, I just want to go with them and the tent's going to be outside. It's outside of where they lived. But it was like, God's just heart is just burning. He's like burning. Can you just build me a tent so I can at least fill the tent and be in the proximity of my children? And he builds the tent. And then if you read in Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord fills the tent. And it says this, and then a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And it's like the pursuit gets a little stronger, right? God steps in a little bit deeper, and he fills the tent with his glory. And he, for 40 years, travels through the wilderness patiently. As they go up and down, they sin. They have righteous years, they have sinful years, but like God's just like consistent and he leads them because he knows he promised this man Abraham that he was gonna bless the families of the world. And he had this plan from day one of like, this is my, this is, this is the scheme. Like we're up here, like we, we got this plan and they might not understand it, but my heart just burns. And this is the pursuit. Like you were at his forefront when he was like setting the stage, he thought of you. Right? And then he brings the law. And God's like, hey, I kind of see this picture as the law is like God's like in the Holy of Holies, right? And the law was like, all right, like here's a way. If you guys actually do want to try to get to me on your own accord, like here's the way. Like walk up the steps. Like I'm filling the temple. Like if you can obey this and you can be holy like I'm holy. Like it's kind of... Some people say that like the law was given to expose sin. Like think about it as a good father who's like, man, if I don't have to send my son to die and like if this works, like, like give it a go, right? You know? And so he like gives them the law and he's like, hey, try it out. It doesn't work, but, it, but try it out, you know? And everyone falls short of the glory of God and the law we know, nobody can obtain it, read it. You'd never be able to do it. <laughs> I promise you that, right? And they, they sojourn through the, through the wilderness, and then they enter the promised land, and Joshua leads them through to the land that he promised Abraham. Remember that guy? And so Joshua takes them in, and David says, God, I want to build a tabernacle for you. I want to build a permanent dwelling house for you. I know your heart burns to be with your people, so let me, God, let me build this temple and you can come dwell it and we can be a people who are known by your presence because I know you're pursuing us. And God's like, no, you've got bloody hands, but your son's going to do it. And so Solomon, he goes, and if you read it, it's fascinating, the amount of gold and the amount of bronze that he stores up and he builds this temple and in 2 Chronicles, the glory of the Lord once again fills the temple. And it says this in 2 Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And it was like, once again, it went from like a tent in the wilderness to now there's a temple. And it's like, God's still drawing closer on this journey of pursuit. How close can I get to them? I just imagine God being like, how close can I get to them? Like how my proximity, like the temple, if you've been to Jerusalem, the temple was built like closer to the city. It's, it's actually around the edge of the city. And I just, my mind has just been wondering, it's like, God, like you were pursuing. You just wanted to get close to your people. You just wanted to be in proximity. You know, and it's just, painful journey I'm sure for God because Israel as we all know they have they're as a culture I think they're vacillators you know because they're just like they go from one extreme to the other and to the other and to the other and eventually Israel ends up uh they get sieged by the Babylonian empire and they go into exile right you see that in Ezekiel and then in Ezekiel 10 I think it's pretty fascinating because And in Ezekiel 10, the presence of the Lord, it's like this crazy spiritual writing. I don't fully understand it, but it basically is articulating the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. And my mind goes to, well, God, is it because your people were in exile? Your people are in Babylon, so what purpose did you have filling a temple where your people weren't? Because I think he just wanted to be in proximity. He was just in pursuit pursuit, pursuit, pursuit. And he's like, well, if my people are gone, then why do I stay in this temple? And so you can read it in Ezekiel 10. The Lord, he leaves the temple. There's another temple built afterwards. They come back, Israel's restored, but there's no writing that shows the glory fills the temple again. But God's an intentional God and You then read Malachi right before the 400 years of silence. And in Malachi 3, the Lord says this, Behold, I'm sending my messenger, and he'll prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord leaves the temple, and he doesn't fill the new one. But before the 400 years of silence, which I can't say I fully grasp, and if anybody does, I I don't know if you should trust them. (laughs) Because that's uh, God and his timing, that's it. I I can't wrap my head around that. I don't know if any of us can. But it's like God's like, don't worry. Like my presence isn't in the temple anymore, but he leaves them with this nugget of like, I'm coming again. And you're going to know it because there's going to be a messenger that goes before me. And he's like, I'm on this pursuit. Like, don't you think for a minute that I've given up on this pursuit? Don't you think for a minute that you've left the forefront of my mind? And you have these 400 years of silence. And then I want to read Luke 2. And I know I'm going like fast, so if I'm giving you whiplash, like, I'm sorry. I'm also not a theologian, so I'm just kind of like giving you my understanding. And it's quite interesting because the glory leaves, the shining glory of the presence, what it talks about throughout the Old Testament. If you read Ezekiel, that's what leaves. 
right? And then in Luke 2, the angel comes to the shepherds and it says this, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is called Christ Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel and a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. There's that glory again. It comes back. And it leads the shepherds to a baby in a swaddling cloth where there's no room for the inn. And God, I can just see God being like, here we go. Like this pursuit, right? This pursuit. We're coming to the climax. You know, and then Jesus, you know, rather than filling a temple, it's... John 1, the word becomes flesh, and the flesh comes and dwells among us. And I'm in awe, because then Jesus, for 33 years, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's Jesus denying himself, denying temptation, denying the opportunity to be a king, denying the opportunity to have political power, Bleeding in the, in the garden, not wanting to go to the cross, but saying, God, not my will, not my plan, but your pursuit be done. And for 33 years, he lives this life of like absolute pursuit with a goal in mind. And I've just been in awe. You know, and then the climax of it all, Jesus, the one who didn't know sin, he became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God, right? And we all know the story. He's crucified, he's put in the grave, and three days later he rises up. And then he goes a step further, and when he ascends, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just like, like that whole narrative, and I probably butchered some of it. It's like, that is like, I've been blown away because that, so often we think of the pursuit of God as like when I turned, when I was born until today. And I've been absolutely like, my mind has been blown and my heart's been like tenderized and really undone thinking that, God, no, like your pursuit for me started back when you called Abraham. 
Like you called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, a man that nobody knew, a man who didn't have any prestige, and you literally told him that I'm gonna bless Riley Allen Verner because of your life. And God goes on this beautiful journey for like 7,000 years, and he's constantly thinking about you, and he fills the tabernacle, and he fills Jerusalem, and then he leaves, and then he says in Malachi, but like, like take heart, don't worry, I'm coming back and I'm sending a messenger. And then Jesus comes and he fills the place with glory, right? And Jesus lives this life of 33 years of just reckless love where he just abandons his life, where he says no to his own flesh and he takes up the cross and he's crucified. And then he says, it's actually good that now I leave because I'm gonna give you the comforter. It's like, oh my gosh, the God of the universe has been pursuing you with a reckless love for 7,000 years. And that right there, that is what is like, it un, it's undoing. And when you have a revelation of that, when you have a revelation of the pursuit of God, what it does is it demands a response out of you. When you have a revelation of how he's pursued you, you'll respond. Ask my wife. It took three years, but once she had a revelation of my pursuit, she crumbled. Okay? <laughs> she said no to me for three years, but her eyes were open. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, she threw herself at my feet, right? <laughs> this girl had a revelation, and she's wise for it. Yeah, I'm preaching now, right? <laughs> I came to me while I was praying. I was like, God, that's a joke from heaven right there. <laughs> the incarnational life to live a life where you actually where these messages as George keeps saying has flesh on them where the physical and the spiritual become one where you actually learn how to empty yourself I think it really happens or I'm proposing or what I feel like I am experiencing like literally at this very present time is like it demands a revelation of the way I've been pursued and the way that I've been loved. Because the only thing that you can do when you realize like how much he's done for you, like put any worldly possessions, homes, jobs, anything like that, just the way he's pursued you in this book alone. It, I've found that it's so compelling that it makes this Christian life like almost easy. We were at prayer last week and I was leading prayer and I just had this moment where I was just like, man, like what you're asking of my life, it's like to fully surrender my life and to like lay down whatever it looks like, to lay down my time, my money, my resources, like to, to stop for people. It was like this revelation aha moment where I'm like, this isn't that hard. Like what you've done for me is so altering. What you've done for me is so great that it's like nothing I can do pales into comparison. 
you know, and I want to read one. We got a couple minutes. There's no backstory in Luke 7. They just call her a sinful woman. There's no backstory for, for who she is or, or what she had done. There's no backstory as to whether she'd been following Jesus, but I would assume that she had been. Jesus has done healings. He's, he's raised the dead. He's spoke the Beatitudes. He's done a lot by this point. And I just want to read this story because I, I think the sinful woman, whoever may, she may be, had a revelation of the pursuit of Jesus. In verse 36 of chapter 7, it says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet and her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he can he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think that right there is like this picture of this incarnational life, you know. It's, it's here and it's here, right? Whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And I think a revelation of the pursuit of God will lead you to the same place as this sinful woman because the reality of it is that we all had a debt that wasn't payable. We all had the same pursuit. We all needed the same pursuit. And I think when we give a revelation of it, it leads us to Jesus' feet, which is here actually at his feet, but also at the feet of people. And it leads to this multidimensional incarnational life that George talked about. But I really do, it's, it comes from that revelation. And I, I would go out on a limb and say that 
the sinful woman had it somehow. Whether it was being in proximity with Jesus, whether it was listening to his messages, she realized that he was there for her. She realized that the word became flesh for her. And it led her to that place. And I feel like as a community, there's even an invitation for us to have a revelation of the way that God's pursued us and to take the same response that Jesus took. You know, in Philippians, it says that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to, but rather he emptied himself, right? And in Ephesians 2, it says that we're actually seated in Christ in heavenly places. So we can hold on to that and consider it something to hold on to. Or we can be like Jesus and we can be compelled to, to not hold on to our position or right. We could spend all day long right here. We could spend all day long right here. Right? But the invitation is to empty ourselves and to live this incarnational life and to respond. The incarnational life is a response to the pursuit of God. I really think that's the only thing that can get us there, is if we simply respond to the pursuit of God in our lives. Because if you do, <laughs> it will compel you to lay your life down the way that Jesus did. It will compel you to worship God the way Jesus worshiped God. It will compel you to love your neighbor like yourself when you get a revelation of the way that God has pursued you for 7,000 years. <laughs> this whole book is just a revelation of his pursuit. And if you open your heart to it, if you open your heart to it, it will soften you, it will tenderize you, it will challenge you, it will cause you to cry in ways you've never cried, it will cause you to rejoice in ways you've never rejoiced but you will feel alive in a way that you've never felt alive before because that is what you are made to do is to respond to him. Amen. 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 I did good. I'm supposed to stop in a minute. I didn't even look. <laughs>